Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. Recently, my colleague Andrew Stanley sat down with Laura Dawson and Chris Sands to talk about what's going on in Canada. Laura is the director of the Canada Institute at the Wilson Center, and Chris is director of the Center for Canadian Studies at SAIS John Hopkins. We could think of no one better to walk us through the recent elections in Alberta, the upcoming federal elections, and the potential implications for the energy landscape in Canada and for Canada-U.S. relations. So welcome, Chris and Laura. Thanks for joining us today to talk about Canada. So there's been a lot going on in Canada as late on the energy side, you know, from pipeline battles to the oil production curtailment and recent elections in Alberta. And now we have the upcoming federal elections in the autumn. Uh, and obviously Canada is a major supplier of energy to global markets and the largest energy trading partner, the United States. So really what happens in Canada is very important for us energy followers out there. And so I suppose to start off uh, the recent election in Alberta, it's obviously going to have a big impact. And where Jason Kenney upset Premier Rachel Notley's uh, bid for a second term. Energy played a big role in, in the in the outcome and running up to the election. Uh, could you just talk a bit about uh, how it I- impacted voters and ultimately the outcome? Okay, thank you. It's great to be here. This was a tough election for Alberta. Albertans in general really liked Premier Rachel Notley. She was engaging. She was warm. She was connected at the individual level, at the social level. People really, uh, really liked her. My, my brother and sister-in-law live in, in uh, Calgary, and they said, uh, well, we really like Premier Rachel. We just can't vote for her party again. And uh, the thinking for most Albertans is that they really need a rescue uh, on the energy file. Alberta's oil and gas industry has just been uh, experiencing a lot of trouble lately. And not all of that, probably not much of that can be laid at the feet of Rachel Notley's government. But at the same time, I think they they thought they needed a government that could get back to business. So they have Jason Kenney, who comes from a federal conservative position and now uh, is, is a provincial conservative party member. And that's defeating the new Democratic Party in Canada, which is traditionally uh, a party of, I don't want to say socialism necessarily, but a left-wing variant. In Western Canada, uh, the the version of, of socialism is farmer cooperative type approaches. Uh, and so in many ways, Rachel Notley did a really good job of rebranding Alberta. Uh, when she took office, uh, a lot of foreign observers like, oh, that Alberta oil, that, that uh, oil sands, that's nasty, awful, evil stuff. Uh, the Notley government was terrific at rebranding uh, Alberta as, yes, an energy economy, but an energy economy that was committed to uh, lowering emissions and carbon tax and had the buy-in of industry to do cleaner, greener, more technologically astute uh, approaches to energy extraction. So that was terrific in terms of uh, rebranding Alberta. But the big problem is there's only one way to get oil, or there's only one market for Alberta oil, and that's that's the United States. And uh, there's very, very limited pipeline capacity to get that Alberta oil out. And if you can't get it out on pipeline, lines. Uh, You have to take it out on rail. And Albertans didn't feel that the other provinces, particularly Quebec and British Columbia, uh, were really playing their game or even playing fair uh, in terms of the movement of Alberta energy and development of energy infrastructure. And so the Albertans decided it was time for a new government, a change of plan. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny. I think when Rachel Notley was elected, she was facing a liberal government in British Columbia that was replaced by a coalition government between the NDP and the Green Party. And despite the fact that there were two NDP uh, premiers living side by side, the divide was quite wide and there was no cooperation benefit. It didn't benefit Alberta having an NDP government being able to talk to another NDP government. Issues like the Trans Mountain Pipeline were just very, very difficult. And it it really, I think, underscores the degree to which Canada, although it's it's a one national economy, is actually also fragmented into several provincial economies and infrastructure, because it needs every jurisdiction's approval, um, can be very difficult to build. No no less than it is in the U.S., where with Keystone Pipeline and and other pipelines, we also face some tough issues. But for Alberta, uh, things had reached a crisis point. Yeah, and I suppose now with the outcome and given the campaign that Jason Kenney ran on with these promises to get the pipeline built and lower taxes and revive the industry, how much leverage or power does he actually have to get a pipeline built, if any? compared to Rachel Notley? I think he could build a pipeline anywhere he wants in Alberta. Uh, <laughs> however, building it across um, across national boundaries, including into the United States, or trying to expand the Trans Mountain, these things are effectively outside his control. In the case of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which had been owned by um, Kinder Morgan, an American company, last year the federal government made the decision that they were going to purchase the pipeline from Kinder Morgan and manage its construction, its expansion on their own. That ran into trouble with a court decision that found that they hadn't done the proper federal review and they had to start the clock over again. But that's in the federal court. And that, although the Trans Mountain Pipeline does bring oil to the coast, it doesn't bring what it could bring to the coast. Um, The federal government, on the other hand, uh, has approved, as has the U.S., the expansion of Line 3, the uh, Enbridge Upgrade Refurbishment Expansion Project, which in some ways is much more consequential because it moves the oil towards uh, that sort of Chicago land refining hub. Uh, this is the the mainstay of the economy that is moving forward. Keystone pipe, the Keystone pipeline. The president uh, Trump here has renewed his approval of the presidential permit in response to a court decision that was uh, that temporarily created some uncertainty there. But that pipeline is still not underway in the way that would be a rescue for for Alberta. And I, I don't want to call you. Andrew, but I I am a big follower of your work here at CSIS, and I think you've identified 2020, uh, just a year from now, as being kind of a crucial window where if production continues and we are waiting for Line 3 to come online, we'll face another choke point where Alberta won't be able to get its oil out and it'll start stacking up in, in the province. And what's so frustrating for Alberta is they say, hey, our energy product is Canada's number one export. We are the reason why you can get affordable energy, affordable oil in in the provinces of Canada. Um, the you know if you're not going to play our game in terms of infrastructure, we're literally going to turn off the taps. And so there's a bill before the Alberta government right now that would restrict exports of uh, of Alberta oil to the province of British Columbia, and they would do that by uh, allocating export licenses that would say how much oil could be shipped and by what what means of, of conveyance. And that sounds terrific. That's the sort of knee-jerk political rah-rah that you love to hear. I think in an, you know, if, if you're an aggrieved 
citizen. But we're talking about major intervention on the part of one government to manipulate the the, the politics in, in another province. And we're talking about a government weighing in on the decisions and actions of private companies, of companies that really want an investment environment that is transparent, that is predictable, where they want to invest in Alberta. And that's something we've been hearing from the companies as they struggle through these difficult times. Uh, back in January, the government of Alberta launched a curtailment policy, which, which actually restricted the amount of oil that Albertan companies were producing. And while it did remove some of the glut and did remove uh, some of the extra stockpile product, and it did bring the price up, it still, again, was the government stepping in, telling companies what they can and can't do. And again, if you're looking for foreign investment, if you're looking to provide a predictable, transparent environment to develop a private sector energy business, Alberta is looking less and less attractive because of these large interventionist plays. And, and I think that's also a very important point. When you look at energy markets around the world, Alberta and the oil sands are one of those rare places where you're mostly dealing with international companies and, and Canadian companies, of course, but it's a private sector move. It's not like Venezuela where you have an, a state oil company which is doing most of the development or even Pemex in Mexico in the old days. It is a very much an international oil community that is very sensitive to political interventions. And one of the things, again, that I think I learned as much from you as anything else, Andrew, you're asking the questions, but you actually know all the answers, very clever, is that if you look at the way the curtailment impacted firms, big companies like ExxonMobil can simply pay more to get access to pipelines. The, the market solution, if there's limited capacity, the value goes up just like ticket sales on a concert or something. So they can afford to lock-in capacity over longer time and pay the higher price, it's the smaller guys who uh, are small producers, small volume, don't have a lot of cash on hand. If they don't sell their oil, they have no revenue coming in and they have fixed costs, so they go deeper into debt. Those distressed companies can get swallowed up by bigger companies who pick up their assets, their uh, their reserves for their own development at a later time. So I think one of the uh, stories in Alberta has been a fear of sort of a consolidation that comes from letting the market resolve this. So you end up with a bunch of big, big players and a lot of the little players get squeezed out. Yeah. And so we saw recently Line 3 has been delayed now until 2020 at some stage. And it seemed that the government originally, when they made the decision to make the curtailment, there was the expectation that perhaps Line 3 would come on towards the end of 2019 and would be saved. But now with that factor um, and that there's going to be, we're going to get to the end of 20, 2019 and if the curtailment is lifted into 2020, we have production rising again and there's not enough capacity. Do you think Jason Kenney would hesitate to intervene in the market again. He supported the policy running up to the elections. Do you think there's a possibility that he could come in in 2020 if we see the big breakout and differentials of prices that he could jump in and intervene once again? Oh, that's a great question. And Chris may, Chris may disagree. I'm not sure I have a strong feeling on that. What Alberta is seeing is really the whole you know, Government of Canada, Ottawa, the other provinces as just being not on their side whatsoever. They feel neglected by Ottawa. I mean, uh, they feel like the Trudeau government is too little too late. And then they came, then the Trudeau government came in and bought Trans Mountain. Okay, that's supposed to be helpful. But you haven't given us an approvals process that that is uh, effective or, or timely. Uh, you seem to be piling on in terms of the uh, approvals uh, obligations with this new Bill 60. So 
I know that they've they've elected Jason Kenney because he's promised to get tough, but I'm not sure what instruments he has at his disposal. Uh, you know, he j- he needs to get a pipeline to Tidewater is what he needs to get, or failing that, Alberta's got to buy themselves a whole bunch more rail cars, which nobody you know is, is not a not an effective, efficient economic solution. So Jason Kenney's the tough guy, but I don't know what he's got at his disposal that's really going to be effective. Well, not to be depressing, but remembering that we have a federal election in October, October 21st, 2019, the question will be, does Justin Trudeau and his liberal government make it through that election, perhaps in a stronger, but also perhaps in a weaker position, possibly even a minority, or will will they lose? If they, if they win, but in a weakened position, and they haven't passed C-69, uh, which is the reorganization of the review and approvals process bill, um, if they still haven't made uh, all the decisions necessary for Trans Mountain expansion to be going forward, these are difficult decisions that a government in a weakened position is going to be even less able to address. And all the pressure that Jason Kenney can bear on Ottawa in a weakened position is still not going to necessarily get a good result. Where Jason Kenney might uh, be more effective than the bluster and the threats is is working with conservatives at the federal level. He was, after all, a fer- former federal conservative cabinet minister as um, in the Harper government, as Laura mentioned. And the conservatives are um, almost certainly going to lead the opposition, but may actually hold the balance on some of these energy issues for the government. And so if he's able to reason with them, the federal government could become a more effective player. But I think on Alberta's behalf, but that has to be done quietly and behind the scenes, less than uh, in front of the cameras, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, I know we're not here to talk about elections necessarily, but there's been some really interesting things going on in Canada just in recent weeks. Um, Things have really turned around and not for the better for the Trudeau Liberals. And two weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, coming into October is probably going to be a Trudeau minority. He's probably going to have to pay the price for for some missteps and, and bad management. But talking to some folks in the Liberal government, in some of the provinces, they're not optimistic at all. Unless the Trudeau government does very well in Ontario, we might actually see the Conservatives move in and take over at the federal uh, federal level uh, in the October elections, uh, which I think would give Jason Jason Kenney some stronger allies in, in Ottawa. And certainly it would, you know, the, the Conservatives have not been shy about the fact that we are a take charge, take no prisoners, get stuff done, get real government. Forget the sunny ways, the days of sunny ways are over, we've got to, you know, adopt a very defensive posture for Canada in the world. I think they're kind of slapping themselves in the forehead a little bit because their leader is not necessarily the strongest example of of that party. And some of the some of the veterans who may be left a little too soon, like Ronna Ambrose, would have a clearer path to victory in October. But if we do see uh, uh, conservatives take power in Canada at the federal level, I think that that will make the prospects for the Alberta energy industry much, much better. There's a, there are another couple of things that I think are looming over that that may restore a sense of empathy across Canada on energy issues that we, has really been lacking as different provinces have said, well, I want to do what I want to do. We're not, we're not concerned about Alberta. Two of them have to do with electricity. Quebec has been trying to expand Hydro-Quebec access to, in particular, Massachusetts, where potentially they they have a a deal in principle that could make them $10 billion worth of electricity sales in Massachusetts over time. 
um, but they need to get the power down. They first attempted a major transmission line through Vermont, which was rejected by voters, then tried New Hampshire, where it was uh, rejected by regulators. They're currently working with, with some positive momentum to build that transmission line through Maine. And the new governor of Maine, Janet Mills, Democrat, has been working to build a coalition that has not got everybody on board, but is moving in, in a very positive direction. Electricity is different than oil and gas, but for Hydro-Quebec, it's a recognition that they too have issues of trying to get uh, infrastructure built in order to keep their industry going. Similarly, on the West Coast, uh, John Horgan, the British Columbia Premier, obviously has been an opponent of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. On the other hand, the Columbia River Treaty has not been successfully completed either. We're, U.S. and Canada are renewing a treaty that covers, goes all the way back to the Eisenhower days, the dams along the river, the Columbia River, and in particular three dams on the British Columbia side that hold back water both for flood prevention, but also they end up letting some of that water go to keep the river flowing, and they get compensated for the, the lost electricity. This has been a very tough negotiation. We've been doing it for several years, but it's another example of how infrastructure and codependence across the Canada's border even makes British Columbia vulnerable. Why do they want more electricity power out of those dams? They need it because Vancouver is expanding, and they need that electricity to help uh, power their economy. So I, so I think that's positive. There's one other thing that I think is interesting, and that's what's going on in natural gas. You, you've seen provinces like Alberta, very interesting gas, British Columbia, if they could manage to get LNG to the coast, and LNG Canada now moving towards building at Kinemat. That could be Canada's first major uh, LNG export portal for the Asian markets. But out east, it, it hasn't been as big uh, a story with the election of Doug Ford, who's a conservative premier in Ontario, there's a greater openness to natural gas, not only development, but imports. And we've seen growing natural gas exports from the United States, particularly from Marcellus and Utica. And Quebec has been wrestling with whether they could go towards hydrofracturing or at least importing gas as, as a bridge fuel. They need it much less. Last week, uh, President Trump here in the United States uh, gave some consideration to a lifting of the Jones Act uh, which is the act that limits shipping between American ports to American flagged vessels um, for the purpose of LNG shipments, uh, which could allow for the development of an LNG economy up the Mississippi uh, and in other major areas, most notably the Great Lakes. And I think this is one area where we really could see great the Great Lakes become an energy corridor moving LNG from ports like Thunder Bay to move Canadian gas, but also from ports like Cleveland and Buffalo to get some of that gas to markets around the Midwest that have been trying to meet climate goals, natural gas could really help. Yeah, so I think what Chris describes is really the need for the big reconciliation because Alberta is sitting there going, okay, you're willing to move LNG off your uh, off the Pacific coast, but you won't take Alberta oil off the Pacific coast. Says to Quebec, you're willing to move, uh, build new infrastructure for hydroelectricity to move that across borders, but you're not willing to take an Alberta pipeline. And so they've been reacting out of this position of, of frustration. But I think uh, as, as Ontario, Quebec, uh, British Columbia are developing their own energy interests that may pave the way for a reconciliation. At the same time, I think there's a concern that Jason Kenney might actually throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, as I was saying, Rachel Notley did a lot to rebrand Alberta, to focus on a carbon responsible economy, to bring the big companies in now. And Jason Kenney seems at least initially to be willing to throw a lot of that stuff out. And I think you need to keep that focus on uh, responsible, efficient you know, carbon controls in order to have that bigger reconciliation, both with Ottawa and the uh, and the provinces. Yeah. So just it's just on the issue then of uh, we've seen Justin Trudeau try to balance these issues of climate change, but then also supporting 
the oil and gas industry. Do you, do you think, I suppose you could answer this question from two different perspectives, politically and practically. Has he been successful in this policy? Um, and moving forward into the elections, how do you think it will play out? Do you think he'll begin to take one specific side as we ramp up towards October? Uh, I'm probably going to you know, lose my friends back in Canada if people are listening to this, but I think that the Trudeau government has done many, many, many things well, but they have not managed the oil and gas file well at all. Uh, they were elected on a sunny ways, sunny days, clean and green uh, campaign, and it would have worked a lot better had the United States elected Hillary Clinton as president, but we didn't get a Clinton president. They got they got uh, uh, Donald Trump, so they were no longer in a trajectory uh, in, in tandem with the United States to begin with. So that isolated Canada a little bit bit to begin with. But then actually how the rubber hit the road in the carbon policies and the the, uh, increased emphasis of ensuring that every province had had a carbon policy, it did not sit well with with Alberta. Alberta did have its own carbon tax and, and it was, you know, willing to play that game to a certain extent. But I think they either felt that the oil and gas industry in Alberta was, uh, you know, either being reviled or ignored uh, by by Ottawa. There was just no real focus on on an energy strategy for Canada that that included oil and gas. Uh, anything you read was always about renewables and more solar panels, and et cetera, and that that was really uh, problematic. And then just when the Albertans were pretty much on their last nerve in terms of, of oil and gas, then the, the the Prime Minister turns around and buys a pipeline. And so that lack of consistency that we don't know where this guy's coming from, we don't know what the direction is, I'm not sure he could have messed that relationship up any worse. And he doesn't have a strong Alberta representation in his caucus. He doesn't have necessarily uh, anyone who can advise him on on managing Alberta politics. I want to underscore something I think that that Laura has emphasized, which is there's, there's almost a degree to which it's not about the balance. It's about it's about the messaging, the the feeling on the part of Albertans and people who depend on this economy that they are important too. Um, I, I think if you were to get the poll data, which I don't have handy, you would find that Canadians are probably more concerned on average about climate change and about global phenomenon than, than comparable Americans. They're just a little further down, closer to the international consensus on this issue. However, Albertans have this feeling that they're being asked to sacrifice their prosperity and wealth so everyone else can feel better about themselves. It it really feels to them, I think, that they've been isolated. And what we need from the prime minister, who is actually generally very good at being empathetic, is a sense that he understands that, that he's concerned, and that he wants everyone in Canada to participate in the future, including Alberta, but that, and he's willing to work for that. I think if he were better able to do that, this whole carbon tax proposal that he's brought forward would find a lot more take up. Stephen Harper avoided having to take action on climate change by saying, we won't do anything until the Americans do. At the moment, that's like saying we're never going to do it ever. So uh, at least not in the near term. Canadians want to hear from their prime minister that we're taking action, even if Canada can't solve the problem on their own. But in order for Trudeau to be able to pull that off, he's going to have to show that he can bring Alberta with him because they're going to be the, the, the toughest ones to persuade. For that matter, Saskatchewan has a very similar worldview, uh, very skeptical about carbon taxes. And I, I want to give, uh, for, for all Laura's friends who are Trudeau fans, 
<laughs> not my uh, friends anymore. Not I think my friends I anymore. Well, I, I want to give them that ray of hope. So they'll say, well, we, we never liked Sans. We love Dawson. But now she's kind of gone off. So maybe we'll like Sans better. I'll pick up some of your uh, your Twitter followers or something. It'll be great. But I, I think to some extent what we're seeing in Canada is very much what we usually see, which is that governments at the federal level in one party tend to then trigger voters to vote for different parties at the provincial level. There's something about Canadian federalism and the bargaining between the provinces that implement most of the social programs and build the infrastructure and the federal government that sets the rules and has most of the tax money to pay for things, where voters often like to see them uh, being of different parties so they know that both sides are going to speak up for them and have a reason to, to fight for them. It's therefore not a surprise that when uh, Stephen Harper was in power and most of the provinces had liberal or NDP governments, the change to Trudeau has now triggered a number of conservative governments uh, across the country and NDP governments as well. So that's normal. It shouldn't be taken by Trudeau as a sign that the voters are turning off liberals and he's got no chance. He has the advantage going into this election, but he's going to have to work for it. And he can't assume that he's the fresh bright young thing that he was in 2015. In fact, he's the oldest of the three party leaders, uh, the three major party leaders running this year. Uh, only Maxime Bernier is older than he is, and he's uh, running this small party in Quebec that might not go very far. And that's one of the, the odd things about Canada that uh, Americans don't tend to uh, that think is really weird, is that, as, as Chris says, it is quite normal in Canada to support a left-leaning party at the provincial level, because you know they're going to give you good schools, and they're going to look after the hospitals, and you know they're going to make you feel good, and then have a conservative, more business-oriented, right-wing orientation at the federal level, or vice versa. So you want to kind of get that balance between the stuff you need at home and the feel-good stuff and the more pragmatic, practical business approach. So if we see a conservative government, do you think there'll be a quick reversal in some of the the climate policy policies that have been implemented? And No, I don't. Um, I think, as Chris says, a lot of those policies have been popular with Canadians. Canadians feel at a visceral level that it is important to control emissions and to lead a cleaner, greener life. What they've objected to, uh, I think, is the incoherence on the policies. You have provinces that have cap and trade, you have provinces that have a carbon tax, and those provinces that have have opted for nothing at this point have had the federal government leaning into them saying, okay, if you're not going to choose a provincial carbon tax, we are going to give you one. Uh, We're going to impose one on you. So, uh, that's really been been the big objection. And of course, you know, in government, nothing changes very, very quickly. Um, so I think if there was a conservative government, they would have to be practical. They would have to provide the deliverables they can, change the optics that they can in terms of, of uh, a return to the energy sector. But at the same time, uh, they have to remember that Canadians are Canadians and they're pretty nice people and they're pretty, you know, try to be pretty socially responsible when they can be. They're also pretty, I think, sensible. And one of the things that I think made Stephen Harper's policy of waiting to move in tandem with the United States rather than leading on, on carbon taxes or, or climate policy approaches One of the reasons that made that sustainable, one of the arguments that made it sustainable, is Canadians' dependence on the U.S. market for their exports and their imports. And right now, and certainly for the past year or more, Canadians have been really worried about the future of Canada-U.S. trade because of the renegotiation of the NAFTA, the creation of the USMCA. And I think a lot of Canadians who are inclined to take climate action seriously are also concerned that a carbon tax that adds to the cost of living and the cost of producing things in Canada will hurt their overall competitiveness. Uh, they know, like like we do, that they're talking 
their current GDP growth is a little bit under 2%. The U.S. just had a, another quarter above three. They can see that difference. They can feel it with their friends and their relatives on the other side of the border. I think there's a lot of concern going back to policy coherence, not that the idea of Trudeau's carbon tax is, uh, is a bad one, but that the timing really matters. And to add to the competitiveness burdens of the Canadian economy at a time when trade is also working against them and so much is up in the air, I think there's a small C conservatism as in risk aversion among a lot of Canadians who just don't feel that this is the time, not that there might not be a better time down the road. Yeah, I mean, with the Canadian economy so integrated with the United States and with Canada really so dependent on on U.S. economically and policy actions, they can't afford to take the lead. Last time we did that was 1975, adopted the metric system because you all said that you were going to adopt the metric system. Look what happened. We've been using milliliters for, for you know, 30 years and you're still we're still waiting for America. You'll, you'll appreciate this. It used to be that you'd refer to the sort of old English pre-metric system as the imperial system. And a lot of my Canadian friends have gone back to calling it the imperial system because it's now the American imperial system. <laughs> the only, only ones who use it anymore. <laughs> Apologies to Britain on that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just on the on the provincial level then, we've seen a lot of, obviously, similar to the United States, a lot of actions on the provinces by themselves. Recent announcements from British Columbia in terms of their emissions plans. And, you know, in the past we've seen Quebec harmonized with California and the cap and trade program and how are those efforts moving along is there more anticipated change based on the outcomes of I think that the, the, the really the Canadians who are paying attention are really prefer a, a carbon tax because it's clean and it's transparent and it's understandable. The carbon tax relationship or the cap and trade relationship with with, with California, et cetera, has just been very difficult for Canadians to get their head around. What? You mean we're subsidizing the California economy so that we can be cleaner and greener? I don't get that. So uh, I think there's a there's a tendency towards uh, a cleaner carbon tax and a lot of major economists and business leaders on both all political from all sides of the political spectrum have come out in in favor of that. I, I think where they are also lacking is is plans for uh, uh, really credible plans for uh, carbon intensive industries. What's going to happen? What happens with agriculture? What happens with with construction? What happens with industries that are using are carbon intensive? Are they going to be completely priced out of the marketplace, making Canada less competitive than it already is? And as Chris says, this has been a pretty difficult time for Canada in terms of, of its economic fortunes with the United States. They are really having to adopt a very defensive position across all aspects uh, of the economy, you know, from everything from tax reform to regulator- regulatory costs to trade and trade diversification. And I would just add to that that Canadians all are generally keen amateur watchers of American politics as well, tuning in on CNN and Fox News and so forth, and of course following CSIS podcasts. And uh, one of the things I think that they're noting uh, with interest is the emergence of the Green New Deal here in the United States, the proposal for a much more radical approach to meet uh, our environmental targets in a timely manner given the UN projections of um, of when the real crisis point is going to hit as, as little as 10 years from now. That's an important debate because the Green New Deal is so radical and so transformative that if it were to take shape, it it would really remake not only the U.S. economy, but much of the global economy. On the other hand, it it also represents, I think, the frustration of many environmentalists who, uh, going all the way back to the Rio conference in 1992, where the U.N. process of uh, climate change really began, 
at that meeting, there's a kind of uh, understanding that came or a consensus between the business community, governments, and the uh, and major environmental groups that the only way to meet dramatic targets at, without social upheaval or or crisis was to use market-based mechanisms. And this was where uh, cap-and-trade, emissions trading, but also carbon taxes were thrown out as being sort of market-oriented solutions that would lower the political cost for governments. Businesses could live with them because they'd have transparent costs and they could adjust, and we'd have a long time frame. And environmentalists, I think, saw that as second best, but they were willing to do it because it's better than no action at all. Where we are now, after now the Paris Accords and the U.S. walking away from those accords and to be honest, those accords weren't super binding anyway. They were more ambitious than uh, than actual. I think now the question is, has the environmental movement kind of given up on these kind of compromises? And when you look at what California and other jurisdictions in North America are doing, is there anything they do that will be seen as enough by the environmental community? And if the environmental community is unsatisfiable because they want radical action, not will they marginalize themselves, which was the reason that they – sort of accepted market solutions in 1992 so that they wouldn't be on the outside looking in. This is this is how important that global environmental debate is um, and how important the Green New Deal is. And when we are on the other side of the 2020 election uh, in the United States, I think Canadians and Americans will look and say, well, are we getting back to the Paris table? Are we going to try to do something constructive on climate change? Or will nothing suffice and so we should just continue in the Trumpian direction of drill, baby, drill, and produce everything that we can? I th- I think this is a, a classic collective action problem, but it's one that looks farther from resolution now than it did just, just six months ago. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we've seen that already, I guess, in some regards with, for example, Keystone XL, that, that has been coming a rallying point for the debate over climate change because the environmental community doesn't feel like there's been enough being done. And so the question is... Does that continue yeah. on the Canadian front? To well, if I can up? go back to Alberta anger, <laughs> uh, I think they are feeling justifiably affronted for being sort of the poster child for keep it in the ground, that somehow keeping Alberta oil, keeping it out of a pipeline is going to uh, make American cities cleaner and greener and everyone's going to give up their uh, give up their fancy new SUVs. So that, that's been a, a big problem for Albertans. And the, the Harper government, less so tru- the Trudeau government, but I think if they're honest, they face it as a problem too, is there's a lot of U.S. and foreign NGOs, uh, organizations that have been uh, involved in lobbying in Canada to, again, keep it in the ground, turn the opinions of, of Canadians uh, who, who live outside of Alberta, also First Nations groups, etc., against uh, against their own commodity. And so the, uh, the Albertans are again saying, look, Ontario, you are turning yourself inside out to save the auto industry, and the oil industry produces four times uh, as many jobs and is the leading leading exporter that we have. And you won't lift a finger to help us. Plus, you're letting those those darned American NGOs come in and, and lobby against us. I think I think that's right, and and maybe you're right to locate that frustration point. I'll say this, and I don't mean this to be patronizing for my Canadian friends, but the challenge for Canada is that it is a small player in a very big world puzzle. And what it does on the climate, what it does to produce oil, will not by itself change the world. It contributes to direction to change, but ultimately what happens in the United States, what happens in China, some of the bigger players will be much more determinative of our futures. And so to some extent, they it's never good to feel like you're a sideshow, uh, but at the same time, they have to be thinking about their future in, in 
in a context that includes what others are and aren't doing. And maybe this is a lesson for all of us. This sounds like a big finish here for this this podcast conversation. But I think a lot of people uh, have been chasing the perfect solution in so many ways in our politics when compromise and muddling through has always been a more predictable and more positive way to govern. Uh, everyone's frustrated with where things are, but the answer is probably not a perfect solution for anybody. The answer is probably just a compromise that helps us move forward. We don't see a lot of spirit for that in American politics or in Canadian politics, but Jason Kenney, the uh, the angry premier from uh, Alberta, is a sign, I think, at the moment of more polarization and not at the moment of, of that spirit of compromise coming to the fore. Yeah, and, and this is one of those, may I say, rare situations where it isn't just U.S. throwing its weight around and Canada is getting hit, or China throwing its weight around and Canada is getting hit. This is a situation where Canadians themselves have the opportunity and really need to get their act together to have a fairly unified national position that would put them in a much stronger position vis-a-vis China, U.S., and their international uh, markets and obligations. So final word, it looks like potentially a conservative government, but a minority I could never say never, but I'm leaning towards conservatives and we'll see how the numbers shake out. Just call us back in September. We'll give you a much better prediction. Thank you so much, Chris and Laura, for having you on. Yeah, anytime. Thank you very much, Andrew. And thanks for listening to Energy 360. Check out our work on U.S.-Canada energy trade. There's a really great map that Andrew put together, which shows just how expansive the energy trade is between our two countries. And for more episodes of Energy 360, look us up on iTunes, CSIS.org, or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. 